So we are in week two of a series called Messy Church. And last week, if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to go to Spotify, Apple Podcast, uh, our website, uh, and listen to it. It's a, uh, we, we started talking about what is the gospel, right? And, and what does that mean and what does that look like in our lives? Because so many times we've been, you know, when, when somebody says, what is the gospel? We go straight to John 3.16 and it's, you know, it's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever uh, believes in him would not perish, And we make it about two simple things. We make it about simply saying a prayer and simply getting into heaven like it's a ticket. And so the reality, what we talked about last week, is that the gospel is so much deeper and richer than that. That the gospel is actually the whole story of Jesus. The whole story of who he is and how he has impacted our life. From the miracles to just the moments where he's hanging out with his disciples to the teachings to all of the things that he did, including his death, Uh, burial and resurrection. So the second part, week two of this, is it uh, begs the question of this. What does it look like to preach the gospel in our town and in our time, in our culture? What does it look like? Because we've all Um, we all know what it, when we hear preach the gospel, our minds have already a viewpoint of what that looks like. Maybe it's uh, sitting around and and talking with your friends and and asking them about if they know who Jesus is. Uh, For some of you, you get the super negative. uh, And I've been there where you walk into concerts or conferences. I've walked into Christian conferences and there's people there holding signs saying, you'll go to hell. And I'm like, I'm going to a Christian conference. What are you talking about? Like, I'm so confused. You're, you're at the wrong place, buddy, but holding the signs, you know, screaming at people. Or you go to like places like uh, New Orleans or Vegas and you got the street preacher who's condemning everybody. Um, you know, you're going to go to hell. And it's like, that's, they could care less. They're in Vegas. They, they probably already know that. Matter of fact, if you like, just Google YouTube and you'll see people going, I actually saw one guy come up to a street preacher and say, and he said, do you believe in heaven and hell? He goes, absolutely. And he goes, well, if you died tonight, where would you go? And he looked at him and he goes, hell. Like just blatantly says that. So for a lot of people, it's not even a a recognition of, 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 well, I think I'm good enough. I'm going to go to heaven. They're like, yeah, I'm going to go to hell. And, and, and yet, the variations of preaching the gospel have not worked to show people who God really is. We, 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 we speak and, and we do all these things, and I believe that everybody that preaches the gospel in one way, shape, or form, uh, they, they have the right heart. But sometimes we have to ask the question, are we doing it for our glory? Or are we doing it for the effectiveness of the kingdom? Because the effectiveness of the kingdom doesn't say that it's your preference that gets the, to, to be used. It's how people are going to be one to Jesus, right? And that's a really odd statement in and of itself because um, we're, we are a prize, but at the same time, like, it, that's being his is not the end. It's the beginning, right? Salvation isn't the end game. It's the beginning of the game. And so... Um, I'm going to start with the, the quote that I spoke last week of Derwin Gray, a pastor in uh, South Carolina. He said, the gospel we preach is the churches we get. And the churches we have is the result of the gospel we preach. In other words, the type of gospel that the church preaches will determine the type of gospel that Christians live out. 
And then they will show up to a church and they will want that same type of gospel. And if you did your homework and went and listened to the four American gospels uh, by John Mark Comer, um, you kind of understand where his heart was in this, uh, this thought process that we have these variations, whether it's denominations or whatever, and if you ever want to know, we're non-denominational. We just love Jesus, and we're going to preach the Bible. Amen? Um, and so there's nothing wrong with, listen, this is not a, uh, we're anti-anybody. I'm just anti-anybody that doesn't, you know, uh, is, is going to preach a false gospel. Let me put it that way. Um, you know, I'm not even anti-sinner. I love sinners. <laughs> um, they're great people. And, and they really, I mean, some of the best people I know do not love God. And I want to say, I want to shake them and be like, do you even realize how much better of a person and how much more impact in life you would have if you knew Jesus? So we can, we can make it look really bad for sinners, right? But what are we? The Bible says we are sinners yet, but saved by grace. I know how bad I am and how bad I need a savior. And so not only do I choose Jesus just so that I can get to heaven. No, I choose Jesus so that I can live a life that makes an impact. Let me ask you this. What if the gospel looked like eating a meal with someone? What if the gospel looked like an act of service or a kind word of wisdom towards a coworker? What if preaching the gospel looked far more ordinary than radical and extreme and overwhelming? What if preaching the gospel came from a place of normalcy in our life and, and regularity, that it's just who we are, that it didn't need a special place and space. We didn't need to drag people to church so that the pastor can get them saved. But that we started bringing people to church because, we got, because they came to know Jesus in the lunchroom or at Walmart or at the gas station or Friday night at our house because we were playing Uno and laughing very hard, Okay. We've had those moments where you're just like uncontrollably laughing. Why, why can't that be a part of the gospel? I think after today, you're going to understand that really, when we talk about preaching the gospel, that's far more effective than anything the church has tried to do in forcing the gospel into people's lives. I want to give you some statistics. According to the Survey Center of American Life, the percentage of Americans who say they have no close friends at all, has quadrupled since 1990. Four times more since 1990 have no close friends. 54% of Americans report sometimes or always feeling that no one knows them well. Up to 40% of Americans have zero close friends or confidants. One of the main reasons for mental health issues today is that people in our secular age are living without, a, without meaning. The secular life script is great if humans are animals. I want you to think about this. When I say secular, I mean living outside of God's plan and will and design. So the secular uh, life script this, this, that, we, that the culture pushes on us, that society pushes on, pushes on us, that, um, um, that higher education can push on us, is great if humans are animals, and what I mean by that is if it's just animalistic, go get as much money as you want, live the life that you want, live in hedonism, uh, more freedom to do whatever you want to be, if it was enough, but it's not. Over and over and over again, you talk to people that chasing something, chasing something. I'm just looking for that next thing. I'm looking for that next time. I'm looking for that next feeling. I'm looking for this moment. 
Instead of having a peace that's inside of them and a joy that's inside of them that doesn't come from things because things fade and people uh, hurt you. But if we are souls and survival and pleasure are not enough, then the secular life script is like chasing after the wind. So close, but always far away. Never near enough to actually touch just to get enough of its atmosphere. Nietzsche said this. This is his words. And by the way, he was a Darwinist uh, uh, believer. He believed in the, uh, the, this whole idea of Darwin, not just evolution. That's what Darwin gets the most uh, rep for. But Darwin was really survival of the fittest and, and all of this. Nietzsche said this. He said, inside a Darwinian, Darwinian worldview, the only two rational decisions are moral depravity or suicide. Wow. So inside the worldview that he believes and he lives and he, and he says that, you know, just chase whatever you want, live your life, be as good as you want or as bad as you want, do you pretty much because the strongest will rise to the top. He says, really, at the end of the day, two things will come out of that, either moral depravity or suicide. Suicide is up 33% in the last two decades alone. Major depression rates and youth increased by 63% in the, just the last few years. And what does this all point to? What is the point of giving all these so down and depressed and, 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 and uh, just blah statistics? The point is this, is that our world is in pain, right? Our world is hurting. They're looking for people to blame. They're looking for, for a coping mechanism. They're looking for something that will give them purpose or joy and meaning. And they're looking in all the wrong places. And then they look to the church and all they hear is, you're bad, you're horrible, you're a sinner. But Jesus loves you. And here's the thing is that both of those may be true, but how they take it can determine on whether or not they will hear anything after that. Jesus does love them. But if all they hear is, you're a sinner, you're bad, 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 you're a screw up, then they won't be able to see the Jesus that we know here, that we understand who he is and his trueness and his purpose and his love and the freedom that he gives in our life. All they will hear is that we, the church, think they are unacceptable. So, what if the gospel, what if preaching the gospel looked less like a sales strategy for Jesus to win converts and more like loving people towards the very heart of God, more like stories of Jesus that we read in the gospel? And so we're going to look at two uh, stories in the, in the book of Luke, the, the gospel of Luke uh, or the gospel according to Luke. Um, and we're going to start in one in Luke 19. And it's going to be verses 1 through 10. And when I start reading this, if you've been at church at any time for any short imagination, you're probably going to go, I know this story. Okay? So it says this, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. And there was a man there named Zacchaeus. How many already know the story, right? And we already hear Zacchaeus. We're like, ah, the wee little man. Um, like he was an Irish leprechaun. And... Uh, <laughs> and, and he was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. 
He tried to get a, uh, a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. Now, I, hold on real quick. I wanted to pause right there. Even though it says that he was too short uh, in the original Greek uh, and Hebrew that, that it's written, it actually doesn't determine whether he was short or if Jesus was short. It just said that, that it just t- talks about being short. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was short. I'm not trying to change your theology, but I just thought that was interesting um, when studying this, that the original Greek just mentions that he couldn't see Jesus. One of them was too short. I don't think it was Jesus. I think it was Zacchaeus. But I just thought you might like that. Uh, uh, So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus, and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down, took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But hear the temperature of the room. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be the guest of a notorious, not just a sinner, but a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Now, we end up making this story a cute little story with the little wee little man of Zacchaeus. Uh, If you grew up in any form of Sunday school, you had the felt board with the little tree and little Zacchaeus climbing the, come on now, y'all know what I'm talking about. And, uh, and, and he was, you know, there's the, how many know the Zacchaeus song, the, okay, see, I don't, but look at how many of you do. That's impressive. Like, uh, I, I know there's a song, but, uh, uh, Jamie's feeling like she needs to come up and sing it. Is that what you're saying? Oh, okay. She was giving me this look like I'm some sinner. Um, I don't, I listen, uh, Catholics didn't sing songs about Zacchaeus. Sorry. Um, and so, uh, but, but you grew up believe just this cute idea of Zacchaeus. Can I tell you, this is not a cute story at all. Um, This story is actually very powerful when you look at who Zacchaeus was and what Jesus did here. Because if you look at it in verse seven, it says that all, not some, not most, but all were displeased with the decision that Jesus was gonna go to his house. Out of all the people, out of all the people there, out of all of the religious people, I mean, he, he was an impromptu parade of Jesus walking down the street. And it said that it was so lined with people that Zacchaeus couldn't see and he climbed the tree. Now, I want you to understand that Zacchaeus was hated. Hated. For many of them, it was disorienting and disturbing to the status quo that Jesus would want to go and have dinner at this tax collector's house. And I know that we may not like the IRS all that much, but this is like 10 times worse than half of our ideas of what the IRS is. People hated the tax collectors because they were Jews who turned on their own. The way that they would work is is they would work uh, as tax collectors is when they had to pay taxes on their farms and their land, they would use these tax collectors who were Jewish to go collect the Roman tax. But here's how the, the tax collectors made money. If the taxes were, say, 50%, the tax collector would bump it up to like 70 so he would get a cut. Could you imagine that? 
Like you're all like, hey, how many think we're already too taxed? Amen, okay, that, that hey, I need my money. Government needs to keep their hand out of the cookie jar. And then the IRS says, well, I know the government says you need to pay like 40% of your taxes, but I'm telling you it's gotta be 55 because I need my cut. They hated them because they were Jewish people getting rich off the backs of Jewish people. Matter of fact, when you look at scripture, the two lowest rungs on the moral ladder for the Jews were tax collectors and prostitutes. Like that's where they ranked as far as moral uh, appropriateness inside society in the Jewish world. And yet we will see who does Jesus eat with? Who does Jesus eat with? Right? Like when you look at this, Jesus is, is completely turning culture upside down. He's completely messing with everybody. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop and I want you to just close your eyes for a minute. Okay? Nobody looking around. Nobody. Like just stop and think. And I want you to think about the worst person on the, uh, on the moral rung ladder in your world. What would you say that that person looks like? What is that job that, that you go, oh, the worst person in the world, this job, this person Maybe it's the person that goes to jail for a, an extremely insidious crime against a child. Maybe it's a murderer. Now imagine Jesus showing up and saying, I want to go to dinner with you. How would that make you feel? Think about that. Because we sometimes take the emotion out of these stories and the reality is this is that when you put yourself in the place of what all the Jewish people, because imagine, everybody's trying to see Jesus. And he's looking at everybody. And he's, and he's, and he's probably greeting and he's walking. And it's, he wasn't trying to do a parade. It's just he was trying to get from point A to point B. And Zacchaeus' heart to want to see Jesus in the moment. And Jesus looks at him and out of all the people says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house to have dinner. They looked at it as one of the worst places a holy person, a teacher of the law could ever go to. See, meals were meant more, meant more in that society than it does in our culture. We all have to eat. Amen. We, who likes to eat? Amen. Like who's already thinking about their lunch after church? Amen. Right. Okay. Some of you are like preach preacher, just preach quicker. Okay. Um, and so we like meals. We, we love the flavors. I mean, like when people are like, oh, eating healthy. I'm like, eating bland, bleh. Like I need something that tastes good. I need a, a steak. I need some, some creamy mashed potatoes. I mean, how many of you spend your time on social media literally watching reels of people cooking food? That's like, you know, listen, I'll get caught in that. I'm like, oh, that looks so good. It makes you hungry. Meals meant more back then because there was something. Listen, so Mary Douglas writes this. She says that meals back in that society um, and meals in general are what, they, what she calls boundary markers, meaning meals either bring people together or they separate them. So when you look at some of the vernacular and the way that words are used, like when you think of our word companion, for example, that word comes from the Latin word com, meaning with, and pan, meaning bread. With bread, but it's really with people, eating. That's where we get that word companion. 
It's, it's to eat with people. So it's not just like, oh, hey, this is my companion. It's like we, we have shared life. We have shared meals together. We have, we have lived life together. Meals were so important. And I think about, like, that's the drawing together. But what about on the opposite side where meals have actually pushed people away? Think of the civil rights movement where, where you know, whether it's the civil rights here in America or whether it was in Europe with the Irish um, or many other places in society in America, we always go to the civil rights movement. But really, listen, people are people and humanity is humanity and we've always hated somebody else. You can't eat here because you're this. You can't go there because you're this. And what was supposed and meant to draw people together has now pushed people away. Think about it. How many would like to go eat a like really, 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 really good steakhouse, right? How many has $200 a meal to go spend that? Not me. So by class system, they push us away from the better. You can have an Applebee's steak. We're not even sure it's fully meat. We just know that it looks like one. I've stopped eating meat at those places because it's not worth the money. It makes my stomach hurt. I'm like, I'm not even sure I'm eating cow at this point. Class system separates us. And and yet God's plan, what what meals were used for with Zacchaeus and um, other stories is that you see this beautiful ability of what God wanted to do in drawing people together. So here's what I want to talk about today in preaching the gospel. I want to talk about table fellowship. I want to talk about table fellowship. A Jewish rabbi would never be caught dead eating a meal at the home of somebody like Zacchaeus. New Testament scholar Scott Barchi writes, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Mealtimes were far more than an occasion for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at the table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. This is what the culture that Jesus lived in viewed mealtime. It wasn't I just went out with somebody who I just met. It's I'm inviting people that I have a rich relationship with that I want to get to know more. I want to sit in their presence and I want to, and mealtimes would last hours. It wasn't just eat and get up. It was, they, when you think about it, read what, G, what Jesus says. It says that he, they would be uh, relaxing at the table after the meal, talking about life. Joachim Jeremiah says this, the inclusion of sinners in the community of salvation achieved in table fellowship is the most meaningful expression of the message of the redeeming love of God. When we as believers say, I am going to invite somebody in to the intimate moments of sharing a meal and talking about life, it changes how they see God. Because it's no longer come to church and hear somebody preach, but it's come and share life and do life with me. And that was, is really the, the call of us as Christians. One theologian said, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate and all the wrong people he ate with. Think about that. They hated Jesus because of who he hung out with. Well, he hung out with them a lot at meals. 
For Jesus, a meal was uh, never a boundary marker in a bad way, but a welcome mat into his life. Look at uh, verse nine in that set of scriptures. It says, today salvation has entered your house. He, he literally spoke salvation over Zacchaeus' family because of the way that he wanted to see Jesus and enter into that moment. What does that mean that he gets to go to heaven or some legal justification? It doesn't mean that what Jesus was saying there was a soul who was far from God, the community of God, the way of God has been brought back to the table through Jesus's loving welcome. Because at that moment, Zacchaeus stripped down his pride and he said, what I care about is seeing this man, Jesus, whom so many great things have been talked about. He says he was rich. He could have paid his way into Jesus, but Jesus doesn't get like that. He could have done a lot of things to be in the front of the, the area. I'll pay this. But his heart was, I will do whatever it takes, Jesus, to be right in your sight because I want to know you. Look at verse 10. It says this, the, the son of man, this is Jesus speaking, right? He says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And it's interesting because we, we hear this repeat in a story in Luke chapter 7. And so I want to read that story, Luke chapter 7, verses 33 through 50. It says this, for John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine. And you say he was possessed by a demon. The son of man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. By the way, pause, that word for other sinners, uh, once again, it goes back to uh, prostitution, sex worker, because that's kind of like, that was their like code word um, when they would say those kind of things. It was like tax collectors and then people worse than them. Well, there wasn't much worse than them. And, and, and catch what Jesus is saying. He said, John doesn't eat. You call him demon possessed. I eat too much. You call me a glutton and a sinner. So, so which one is it? This is Jesus talking to them. And he says, but wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. One of the Pharisees, one of the uh, religious leaders asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman, sex worker from that city, heard he was eating there. She brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with expensive perfumes. Then she knelt behind him at his feet, weeping. Her tears fell on his feet and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this is a thought. Catch this. This is how good Jesus is. This is, he did not say this out loud. He thought this. If this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver, which, by the way, was a year and a half wages, okay, to one, and 50 pieces to the other. But neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one from whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, you didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. 
I tell you, her sins, and they are many. This, look at Jesus, like slyly telling everybody her business, right? I tell you her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. And then, the Jesus, then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus eating with people like this and these moments were not the exception, but the rule. Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And though he wasn't, he wasn't a glutton. He wasn't a drunkard. He wasn't uh, just a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus got that reputation somehow. In the Gospel of Luke alone, there are references to food over 50 times. Jesus loved food. So if you don't love food, you must not love Jesus. <laughs> See the correlation there? Okay. One teacher states in the Gospel, according to Luke, Jesus is either coming from a meal, going to a meal, or is eating a meal which is one of the reasons why I love Jesus. Jesus gets my need for like a good burrito or a steak or ice cream. I think Jesus would love bluebell ice cream. I really do. Jesus recognized the power of the table and did not nearly talk about eating and drinking, but went around eating and drinking. And isn't this the marvelous craziness of church is that we will talk about all the things that are good and we will talk about all the ways that people need to know Jesus, but then we just stop there. And Jesus says, it's not enough to talk about how people can find me and how authentic he is and how great and marvelous his works are, but we have to live it out in a way that the world knows it in authenticity. In the early church, the table was the center point of the church and the bread and wine, the center point of worship. It was a celebration of who Jesus was and the church turned it somber. When we went and saw Zach Williams in concert, uh, he does uh, uh, a fantastic, by the way, if you ever get a chance to see Zach Williams in concert, please do. Um, he is amazing, okay? Uh, and at the very end of his concert, he, he takes communion. And he said, the church has turned communion somber when it was supposed to be a celebration, right? We play the depressing worship music, you know, everything's in minors. Dong. Can't be a happy song. It's got to be minors. Okay, and, and we, we have to, everything has to, the pastor brings his voice down. Jesus took the blood and it turned, like half of y'all are thinking about church services. You're like, oh my gosh, I never thought about it. They're making me sad while I take communion. And Jesus, even before his death, it was a celebration. Even the day before he was, the night that he was going to be taken, he literally was celebrating, this has come. I am the sacrifice that we should celebrate. So, I don't really have points or thoughts. I just have some key things I want to give you about table fellowship today. In the next 10 minutes, I want to give you these things that God has shown me and how they can be absolutely radically changing our lives and how we minister the gospel and preach the story of Jesus. So the first thing I want you to realize in, in Luke is he constantly goes back to this, this thing called the Son of Man. Tim Chester points out that Luke uses this verbal formula, the Son of Man came twice, right? 
One is about Jesus's mission. The other is about his method. And so we have the first one, which is the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is Jesus's mission. This is what he came to do. Jesus came to make, not, not just make bad people good, but to make dead people alive, to being Bring people to a knowing understanding of a good God. This was the mission of Jesus. And then he says, the son of man came eating and drinking. This was how Jesus did it. This was his method. All the ways that he could have done it. And you may go, well, but well, hold up. He, he preached. He, he stood up on the mountains and he stood in the boats. And yes, and if you actually study those, they are two different styles of uh, preaching the good news. And typically it had to do with the audience. One was more of a fallen away believer and one was somebody who was a sinner that needed an authentic moment with Jesus. And if you look at it, majority of the times that he had meals with somebody, there was somebody who was so far gone from God. And in those moments of sharing meals, he drew them to his heart. And when he preached the gospel, he was preaching to people that already understood the law, but he was coming to fulfill the law. And they were like, oh, yeah, we understand that because we go to synagogue. That makes a lot of sense. Two different groups, two different reasons, and two different purposes. Son of man came eating and drinking. And this practice of Jesus, if you want to give it a name, we're going to call it this today. We're going to call it hospitality. How many have ever heard that word? How many have ever worked in what they call hospitality? I'm a hospitality worker. I was a server, okay? I worked in hospitality. I guess I technically work in hospitality as a detective, not one that most people want to uh, see or, or, or be a part of, but um, it's a hospitality nonetheless. Um, I think I treat people well. Hospitality, this word, means something very different in the New Testament than in the modern world. In Greek, it's this word called phylexion. It is the compound word of, of uh, philo, meaning brotherly love, where we get Philadelphia, which is not brotherly love. Um, if you've ever been to Philadelphia, you understand. If you watch football, you'll understand. The eagles do not represent brotherly love. Um, and you've got this word xenos meaning stranger or foreigner. So hospitality is the opposite of, you ever heard the word, especially it's like a big word right now, xenophobia. You know, it's the, oh, you're afraid of foreigners. And they twist that so badly, right? But it's the opposite of that of saying, God welcomes the stranger. How else are we going to get people to know God if we don't get to know them? It's not a political thought, but it's a kingdom thought where the stranger feels welcomed into the house and becomes friends with those that are close to Jesus and learns what it means to love God. So let's define this through God's eyes as expressing the welcome of God to all through tangible acts of love, namely through giving food, shelter, and relationship. And all throughout the New Testament, we are commanded to continue what Jesus started in table fellowship. Romans 12, 13, when God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice what? Hospitality. By the way, that word practice in the original language isn't just try to get it right, right? Like you're not practicing your swing. You know, maybe you might get it right. Oh, maybe, okay, you suck, don't do that again, right? Oh, well, at least I practice, I tried. That word practice actually means to do something with intense effort and with definitive purpose. 
It is not, well, I'll try it once, and if I don't do well, I'll never have to do it again. It's a purpose-driven mentality that I'm going to practice hospitality. I'm going to be given intense effort to show people hospitality. First Peter 4, 8 through 9, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Amen? Show what? Hospitality to one another without, without grumbling. It's not hospitality if you're like, oh, I guess I'll go have dinner with the Starnes. I don't know. They always eat Mexican food. (laughs) It's not, listen, there's no joy there. It's my wife. She's like, oh, we're going out with the Starnes because they eat Mexican food. It's, it's a joy. It's a, the, without grumbling. And listen, that's an easy one, right? But what about your friend when they call you up and say, hey, do you have some time this afternoon? Oh, but really, I was going to do A, B, C, D. God says, no, you're going to make time. Why? Because being hospitable is inconvenient most of the time. Hebrews 13, 1 through 2. Keep on, you see a theme? Keep on loving each other, being hospitable to one another, As brothers and sisters, don't forget to show what? Hospitality to who? Strangers. For some who have done this have entertained angels without realizing it. I want to get to heaven one day and God, God, was there an angel like when I did something good? Because I would really like to know that I did the right thing and not the wrong thing. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, hospitality is actually a requirement for church leadership. Now, I've heard pastors being kicked out of uh, their, their leadership for things like mismanaging money or sexual infidelity. I've never heard anybody taken out of their pastoral role because they were unhospitable. Like, and yet many of us, and I'm not saying, I'm, I'm going to look at the ceiling at this moment, but many of us would know pastors that don't even uh, engage in their flock outside of Sunday because they're the holy ones. Give me a break. Let's watch football together. Let's eat together. Because the more we do those things, the more the meaningfulness of life becomes. What if we lived out this, 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 just absolutely, I love, radically ordinary hospitality. That serving one another and loving the stranger is so ordinary, but it looks so radical to the world around us because they're not used to that. What if radical ordinary hospitality is the norm for the believer? So, we're thinking of this word hospitality, but I want you to understand something. Hospitality is not entertainment. Hospitality is not entertainment. Hospitality is not Martha Stewart or that picture where all the beautiful people are around the modern uh, picnic table and they're all hip and they've got all the the cool fashions going on. You've seen the, the pictures on Instagram and you're like, where's that at? Where are those cool people at? That's not hospitality. That's fake. <laughs> that's, that's, that's for the magazines and that's for Instagram that where everything looks good. That kind of hospitality excludes people because what if you don't fit the mold? What if you're not pretty enough, hip enough, modern enough? What if you don't know the lingo? And what happens is, is that the world sees the church that way. What, what if I don't know the lingo? 
What if I don't raise my hands all the, all, when everybody else is? What, what if I don't do this right? Or, you know, one of the most common things here is, what, you know, and I kid you not, I still to this day, how, am I, how, how do you want me to dress when I come to church? Uh, with clothes on. It's all I ask. With clothes on. Outside of that, I, I don't care. Like, <laughs> why? People won't go to church because they're going, I don't look good enough for the rest of them people. Because we decided that things like wear your Sunday best was biblical. Bull. <laughs> now, if you listen, if you like to dress up, dress up. Dress to the nines. Come in your, listen, suit and tie, I don't care. You want to come in your shorts and Crocs? Cool. Like, I don't, I don't care. Because when we get to, like, listen, we have made it so much about things that don't even matter that we are alienating people that are far from God that if they knew the love of God, they'd go, wow. But they're worried about how they look when they walk in the church. They're worried if, if they're going to do something stupid or say something dumb and we're going to all laugh at them because we're Christian and they're not. We make it so hard for the world that doesn't know Jesus to get to know Jesus because we make it something it was never meant to be. Jesus didn't even have his own home, but he welcomed himself into others and played both the guest and the host. Entertainment is about exclusion and performance. Think about it. When you entertain somebody at your house, the house has to be perfectly clean, doesn't it? I know in my house, if somebody's coming over, my butt can't sit on a couch. Like, I'm looking for something to do. Stephanie's doing something, and I'm like doing football drills over here going, oh, God, put something in my hand. You know, I'm like walking around vacuuming the walls so I look like I know I'm doing something. (laughs) The house got to look pretty. (laughs) Vacuuming the dogs. Why? Because it's about, it's, it's about performance. Look how good our house looks and look how well-maintained we look. But what happens when the common person comes over that knows us and, and we don't care. There's still like clothes hanging over the, the couch and we're like brushing dog hair off the couch. Here you go. It's kind of clean. Entertainment is about exclusion and performance. It's, there's a clear line between host and guest. There's, it's, it's about sporadic events on the calendar, right? We mark our calendar for entertainment purposes. It's about, it's about reciprocity. I know I just screwed that up, but it's, if I take you out to lunch, then you've got to take me out to lunch. It's only right. If I have you over for dinner, then when's my invitation coming, right? This is how we think about entertainment. Entertainment is about becoming someone. Man, if I have the right people at my house, I'll be known as something. Hospitality is about inclusion. And it's about service. Serving people well. It blurs the line between host and guest. When we had Michael and Cheryl and Bob and Tammy and and, and Pastor Corey uh, here a couple of weeks ago, they all stayed at our house. It's your house, man. Do what you want. We own it. You do whatever you want. The food, yeah, eat it. Just go in and rummage through it. That that line between host and guest is blurred. There's a regular rhythm of life with hospitality and generosity and justice. 
Hospitality is not entertainment. Luke 14, 12 through 14. I promise you, we are coming to, we're coming to a close. I had to look to make sure I'm not lying to you. Luke 14, 12 through 14. He said also to the man who had invited him. This is Jesus speaking. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. We can get caught up in that. Really, that's not what Jesus was saying, but he, what he's saying is lest they also invite you in return and you're repaid. The interesting part in that first part of the scripture is that he doesn't, it's not even a if you will have people over or if you will uh, invite people to the table. It's when you. Jesus has an expectation that we will be hospitable. When you have people over, when you are at the table a fellowship. This is what I want you to do. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. See, hospitality is an Eastern culture is still to this day a high value. But instead of trying to move up and be known, Jesus uses hospitality for his followers as a way to serve the poor, the hurting, the lost as model of downward spirituality that changed the world. Hospitality was never meant to be a look at how I can come up. It was a meant to, hey, invite you in and treat you well. And I want to love you in a way that is tangible and real. Historians say this type of hospitality was the primary way the gospel got spread at such a rapid pace. And this is where I want us to, to land today. I want you to hear this. Going from a few hundred people in the upper room to over half the population of the Roman Empire in just three centuries. All through table fellowship. They didn't have microphones. They didn't have stage. They didn't have celebrity pastors. They didn't have the latest and the greatest. All they had was an invitation to come and sit at the table and live life together. The gospel spread from one home to the next, one table to the next. It changed the world. And this word hospitality is where we get the word hospital, hospice, hotel, and hostel. Did you know that there were no hotels and hospitals in, in that time frame? That, that it was the church. You know, we, we, we talk, you know, in Christmas time, there was no room at the inn. Um, it was, there's a collection. Yeah, there may have been places where people could stay, but there was no such thing as like a, a natural hotel or anything like that. It was the church that rose up and actually created these things. There was these things called Christ rooms. And, and um, one of the... Uh, Roman uh, Christian leaders actually said that, it that what we should do is we should have a room that was set aside for people that would travel so they would have a safe place to land and stay and that we should treat them as we would treat Christ. Jesus, his followers were the first Airbnb. Think about that. It was, it was the church that created the first hospital. In 370, Basil, the bishop of uh, Caesarea, found what historians considered the first hospital as a response to severe famine. He created it through the church. And it not just housed people so they, they could either get better or die. They actually treated people with medicine. 
which by the way, modern medicine was very uh, uh, rare in those days. The church for thousands of years saw it as their duty to honor and to serve in hospitality. And it wasn't until the 19th to 20th centuries that the federal government took responsibility. And I believe the church lost something when we just handed it over. Oh, you're going to do it? Okay, here. And the church lost its avenue of preaching the gospel in such a tangible, everyday way. And we relinquish it to now the preacher to preach the gospel and the government to take care of the sick, the hurt, and the needy. Maybe it's time to rediscover our ancient heritage of radical, ordinary hospitality. And I'll end with this thought, the culture versus Christ calling, or what I would call the practice of hospitality. What if we took the Bible serious and we did what it asked us to do? What if we spent time getting to know people and inviting them to the table to share life and God's love? Not just being busy, not just being lonely, and not just being successful, but being intentional, purposeful, and effective for the kingdom. What if once a week you opened up the table to people? And some of you are going, hold up. I had you until this. <laughs> let's start, let's, let's try again. What if once a month? Pastor, do you know how busy I am? Do you know what my, my schedule looks like? Pastor, I don't have a whole lot of money. I, what am I going to feed them? Okay. Go to like one of the five billion coffee shops that sprouted up over the last two years. Hey, can I meet you at Jacob's Well? Can we, can we get some coffee? Hey, can I meet you at a park? Bring your lunch, I'll bring mine. If we put it in a box, then we will tell ourselves how we can get out of it. Uh, my house isn't big enough. It's never clean enough. My kids are crazy. Amen. But when we start to say, instead of the excuses, because here's the deal. Okay, let, let's just, uh, I'm encouraged by how much y'all invite your friends. I know this because I talk to you. I like to think we're friends. Um, but, because I know, you'll say, oh yeah, I invited so-and-so and so-and-so and, you know, I, I've been talking to my worker or this or that. But what if you, instead of maybe inviting them here first, hey, you want to come over to my house for dinner? Hey, you want to go out to lunch? I mean, everybody's got to eat. You're not even promising you're going to pay for them. If you're financially capable, then do it. But if, I mean, hey, look, we're going Dutch, but you want to go out to lunch? <laughs> hey, how's life? See, the gospel, when it's not a prepared A, B, C, do this, and then you know Jesus and move on with your life, bless you. But when it's just life, all of a sudden they start to see you and not just your, your Sunday best or your prepared Christian verbiage, but in the, oh, yeah, man, I have those same struggles. Yeah, you know what? My marriage has had sucky, rock, rocky times too. You know, my kids have been crazy too. You know what? I know what it's like to be financially insecure and, and struggling. And though I don't have all the answers, man, I, can I tell you what has helped me throughout the seasons? And then you just slowly infuse them. Now, here's the problem with table fellowship. It takes time. And we want to, come on, let's just get them to know Jesus. Let's get them to heaven, get them on the train ride. But at that slow process of getting to know somebody, 
that slow process of, of building relationship, all of a sudden you have already started discipling them without them even knowing. And so when they come to that decision of, man, I want to live this life that you've got, they are already light years ahead of that person that walks into the church and says, well, the pastor told me to pray a prayer and I prayed a prayer and life was good. No, it wasn't. It's the practice of hospitality. Hannah, you can come up. I don't suspect that everybody knows who Christine Kane is, but Christine Kane is a phenomenal speaker. She, her and her husband, Nick, are the founders of A21 uh, campaign. They, they actually stomp out uh, uh, sex slavery and, um, and sex work uh, all throughout the world. And uh, I just recently heard her preach at a conference that I was watching uh, on video. And it was so, is God's time, timing, isn't he? he? He is so good at his timing. She starts preaching about COVID. <laughs> We're like, well, can't we get rid of this already? She was talking about how their life was so busy and they were crazy and they were going from this country to that country. And I mean, they travel all over the place, Brazil and Europe and Australia, and, but they live in Los Angeles and she's Greek. Um, so she's crazy. Um, if you ever get to listen to her, she's a spitfire person to listen to. But she says it caused us to have to slow down because we couldn't travel. Couldn't get on planes and go to anywhere. She goes, we didn't even really know our neighbors. Now that struck home with me. Because I was like, man, do I know my neighbors? I know the neighbors across the street. I talk with them a little bit. We knew the neighbors that lived right next to us and then they moved away and then I never got to know the other people. And she said, so we just started to take our dinner and have a picnic out in our front yard at the same time every night. And our next door neighbor started doing the same thing. Cost everybody absolutely nothing because they had to eat dinner anyways. They just started talking, social distancing. And they realized, that obviously this is in California, so they had to do this for like a year and a half and probably still had to try to wear a mask and eat at the same time. Um, They realized that at that time, everybody started to notice what was happening in their neighborhood. She said that people would start to take walks and just start to hang out. They did, like this cost them nothing. They had to eat anyways. And they built friendships with people in their neighborhood. They got to share how they... I mean, could you imagine that conversation? So, Bob, what do you do? Oh, I'm an engineer. What do you do, Christine? Oh, I help women who have been sold into slavery find freedom. Oh, okay. Tell me more. Most of my friends have no clue what that is. And you start to share your compassion and your passion for life. The next thing you know, they're intrigued and they're like, oh, tell me more. Why? Because it's table fellowship. So it may be radical to you. But what if we just started to do it a little by little? You may actually find you even like it. Even you introverts. I like talking to people. 
I get energized. I know some of you absolutely like, if you could just eat food and not even look up, you'd be happy. But can I tell you that your soul actually hungers for relationship? And what if the gospel is preached by just sitting at a meal with somebody? Or hey, you know what? Come and have a game night with your neighbors. It's amazing how many people will let their guard down when they laugh their heads off. This isn't radical. This isn't here. Here's five steps you can go and evangelize your world and tell everybody about Jesus. It's simply, what if we do what Jesus did, which was, hey, can I have, I mean, Jesus was pretty, listen, Jesus is the type of friend that most of us wouldn't want. Hey, Jerry and Alyssa, can I have dinner tonight with you at your house? What he's really saying is, if you will say yes, you have no clue what I have prepared for you. So when you invite friends in, they, they may, listen, it's, it's a little bit of prayer, right? God, prepare this place, prepare this, an atmosphere, prepare my words. That I don't just sound like a Christian billboard, but I actually, you know, engage in life with somebody. So that goal is maybe it takes five, six months, but they see the authenticity of Christ through me, and they would want what I've got. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for who you are. You are good. And God, if it worked for you, and it worked for the first century church, and then it literally worked for hundreds of years why did we ever get away from it, God? God, forgive us for making our lives so busy that we stopped doing the things that actually showed people Jesus. Forgive us for thinking that we could package you in a cute little gift box with a bow on top and think that it would be enough. God, we know that there's a hurt and dying world around us that, that need realness, need genuineness. And it can't just come in an hour and a half at church, and it can't just come in these beautiful little one-liners that we like to say, but God, it comes in meeting people at the table. So God, help us. Help us to be willing, whether it's weekly or monthly, to find ways have table fellowship and not just with people that we like not just with people that we've already built relationship with maybe with people that we we barely know but we could get to know God that we would guide and lead people on a journey of what life could look like when Jesus followers truly do what Jesus did Father I pray that you would take this week and give us opportunity to live it out before you but as your word says, that God, they would see the works of our lives and they would know that we serve a good father. Jesus, we love you. We're so thankful for what you did on the cross. You did die for our sins. You did rise again and that you are seated at the right hand of the father. And that we know that when we follow you, we do have eternity set aside. But God, help us not to just live for eternity, but as it is in heaven, let it be on earth for us now. 
Camden would be forever changed because we choose to look like Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen.